Learning to manage innovation. One of the few good things to come out of the current pandemic crisis has been the steady flow of examples of impressive innovation. If we ever needed a reminder that we're a wonderfully inventive, creative species, then we haven't had to look far in recent months. Faced with the urgent challenges of providing life-saving equipment like ventilators or protective equipment, the response was not only rapid, but along a broad frontier, bringing together players from different worlds to share their knowledge and other resources in the service of meeting that challenge. We had people from worlds as far apart as vacuum cleaners, Formula One motorsport and aircraft design coming together to co-create novel solutions and fast. And that effort was sustained as the targets shifted, finding new ways to create and then test, approve, manufacture and distribute vaccines as a way of moving on the offensive against the virus. We're not out of the crisis yet, but there are optimistic signs and much to be taken from our ability once again to mobilize creativity and to innovate. Which is a good thing because even if we do manage to get through this crisis and back to some kind of normality, it'll still be a world in which we need innovation, urgently and across a broad front. Not least in the area of sustainability. It's becoming clearer than ever that we have a lot more to do to try and save our planet. Extreme weather events like heat waves, fires and floods give an almost biblical sense of urgency to drive innovation search. Images of fish dying because of ingested plastic provide stark reminders of the environmental damage we continue to do and the pressures on to find ways of being more careful with our planetary resources. According to the WWF, we're consuming these at the level of 1.75 planets worth, a figure likely to rise to two by the year 2030, which is a problem since we only have one planet to actually live on and supply them. And if those crises weren't enough, we've still got plenty of other challenges not yet resolved. A third of the world's people have no access to clean drinking water. A billion can't read, with hundreds of millions of children set to follow in their footsteps. And close to 100 million people are now homeless refugees. The list goes on. Behind all of this, we need the engine of economic growth to help us recover from the pandemic. We need innovative businesses to power the economy, to employ people and to create the wealth which we can use to deliver public services like healthcare, welfare and education. So yes, we need innovation more than ever. But we also need to be able to make it happen and happen effectively to be able to repeat the trick. There's too much at stake to trust to luck. We need to learn to manage the process. Now, the good news is that we know quite a bit about it. Innovation isn't a single flash of inspiration, a, a light bulb moment. Instead, we know that it's a journey to create value from ideas. And we know a lot about that journey and what influences success and failure along the way. We've got a map and it's a well-worn but reliable one. In fact, over the past hundred years or so, we've managed to capture and codify the knowledge enough to allow the idea of an innovation management standard. That sounds a little paradoxical, 
But what it means is that we have a stable body of knowledge about the kind of system an organization needs to put in place to enable innovation to happen regularly and repeatedly. It'll vary, of course. It needs less formality in a startup than in a giant 50,000 person corporation. But there is still a discipline, a body of knowledge to draw upon. And the International Standards Organization is now actively promoting this. But that doesn't mean that making the innovation journey is simple. Having the knowledge is one thing, but we still have to adapt and configure it to our own circumstances. The challenge remains the same. How do we create value, commercial and social, from our ideas? And the overall structure of that journey, the stages we need to pass through, like search, select and implement, it's the same. But the context in which this plays out, the landscape through which we're traveling, varies widely. We need to learn to innovate in different worlds. It might be the world of the startup, a high-risk roller coaster ride at high speed, fueled by passion and energy and built on dreams. That world is all about scarce resources, high uncertainty, lack of knowledge, groping through a maze in the dark. And for every startup success story, there are thousands of failures, often representing people with wonderful ideas, energy and passion, but lacking the skills to translate those into something of sustainable value. Or it might be the world of the growing business, flush with the success of a first venture and now trying to repeat the innovation trick. Adding complexity, new offerings, new markets, new partners, bringing in more people and the structure and systems to enable them to innovate. Successful growth doesn't make maturity a comfortable place for innovation. Instead, it brings other challenges. How to maintain a steady flow of both incremental and radical innovations and do so across a broad front. How to create an innovation culture in which many people can be involved in the innovation task and how to align their efforts. And how to recapture that startup capability. How to build in the capacity for challenge and risk-taking. How to create the possibility of renewing the business. For social innovators, the same growth challenges are there, but trying to make the world a better place through innovation brings in additional challenges. How to balance the passion and stay true to the core values underpinning the social mission with the need to bring in a network of partners who may not always share this commitment. How to work with multiple stakeholders. How to balance the need for risk-taking with ethical concerns for vulnerable people. And in the public sector, managing the tricky three-way balancing act. We need to take risks and we need to ensure there's sufficient reward for taking them. But we also have to take care of reliability. We can't not deliver key public services. And that often leads to a culture of risk aversion, playing safe. No one wants to try new things out if they're going to get blamed when things go wrong. But the rising costs of public services and the growing demand for them means that we can't carry on without innovation, sometimes of the radical kind. So we need to find a way of balancing risk, reward and reliability. So there are plenty of journeys to be made, plenty of innovation adventures to be had. What they share is that there's an element of learning to become better travellers, mastering the skills and capabilities which will help make those journeys more effectively. 
We understand that innovation doesn't just magically happen. And nor is there a magic innovation machine which simply requires feeding with the right ingredients to guarantee a steady stream of successful value-creating innovations. No, it's about people and they need the skills and capabilities to undertake this innovation journey. As the famous management writer Peter Drucker once said, innovation is what entrepreneurs do. And they do it in many different contexts. We may use the label to describe what goes on in a startup, but actually we need the same set of skills in a project team working in an established organisation. We need people able to drive through change to help improve services we deliver inside public sector organisations like schools and hospitals. We need social innovators working in different ways to create social value to help make the world a better place. And in hundreds of other spaces, the local scout group, the online carers support group, the organisers of the after-school club and the many other social groups which share a common purpose, the same pattern of shared creativity and value creation operates. And while passion and energy help, they don't necessarily mean that innovation succeeds. Most innovation fails. It's not surprising. It goes with the territory. It's all about uncertainty and you can't make an innovation omelette without breaking eggs. The point isn't that innovation is difficult and, especially at the early stages, that it often fails. It's rather to use that to help learn. It'd be very wasteful to keep going back to zero after each project, whether it succeeds or fails. Far better to try to distill learning about the how, what worked and why. In other words, can we learn to manage innovation, build up the skills and capabilities to repeat the trick? It's a craft. Now there's a wonderful computer game originally developed way back in the 1980s called Elite. You can still find versions of it today. It was a simple but enthralling game involving learning to pilot a spacecraft and then crisscrossing the universe in a series of interplanetary trading activities. The early stages were all about mastering the craft skills of being a pilot, crashing repeatedly as you tried to dock with a space station, managing to load your first cargo, and then being attacked and shot down by pirates. Finally learning to make it to your destination and turn a small profit on your trading mission. But over time you got better, developed your skills and capabilities, began to make more adventurous journeys you learned the craft. Although set far into the future, there's a kind of resonance here with a much older model, that of the medieval craftsmen. The guilds were pretty good at managing vocational training with a system which still has value today. Whether you were going to be a stonemason, wheelwright, thatcher or blacksmith, your training followed the same path. You'd start at the bottom learning as an apprentice through a mixture of formal training at the hands and often the fists of a master who would mentor your progress through a long sequence of mistakes. But eventually your learning paid off. You were released out into the wider world as a journeyman, able to take your trade and practice it alone. Note the word practice. You still had a lot to learn, but you did this now by accumulating a variety of different experiences, working on different projects. 
Eventually, there'd come a day when you'd built up enough hard-won craft knowledge to be able to spend your time not only building cathedrals, but also passing on your knowledge to another wave of apprentice stonemasons. You'd become a master craftsman. This idea of learning a craft offers us a useful metaphor for the world of innovation. We know it's not magic. Creating value from ideas is more than just that light bulb moment. It's a journey, one as fraught with uncertainty and nasty surprises as any of my interstellar jaunts when I was playing elite. And whilst each journey is unique, there is a pattern to them which is shared. Whether we're in the public or private sector, working in a startup or part of a large organization, the same challenges emerge. Now, making this journey is going to require considerable skill if we're going to avoid crashing somewhere along the way. But learning doesn't have to be a matter of trial and error alone. As we've seen, just like our medieval guilds, there's a wealth of accumulated experience which we can draw on. The challenge we still face isn't in the what, but in the how. How can we help people learn and master the skills and capabilities of managing innovation? There's growing recognition of this, with policymakers calling for the development of key skills around creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Practitioners too are recognizing that what we need to support the industries and the public sector of the future will be people able to deploy these skills. And this really puts a premium on thinking about how we approach supporting learning what could be the life skills we need for the future. The good news is that there's growing opportunity and interest on the supply side. From being a subject taught in business schools and engineering classes in a rather specialized fashion, we now have a much broader palette of offers of short and long form courses to suit a wide audience. School kids now have the chance to explore the joys of starting their own classroom-based businesses. The same thing's happening at universities and in other higher education establishments, with students joining boot camps, working in incubators, trying out the tools and techniques to equip them either to start their own ventures or become experienced and skills enough to become attractive employees for established organizations. In the area of social innovation, there's a proliferation of resources to help enable startups to establish and to scale, drawing in an ever wider variety of potential entrepreneurs. For example, the Diversity Business Incubator is working with refugee women in the Plymouth area of the UK, trying to help them establish a foothold in a new country, begin a new life and achieve an identity through starting ventures. In the public sector, there are labs and training camps, courses and resources to help bring an innovative mindset and find ways to channel ideas. For example, in the Torbay and South Devon Hospitals Trust in the UK, junior doctors are required to work on process innovation projects as part of their final training. And programs like the Productive Ward have been in operation for many years, equipping nurses and other medical staff with skills in innovation. And change is happening in the not-for-profit world as well. The humanitarian aid sector is, by any stretch of the imagination, a challenging place in which to work. But it's one which has innovation right at the centre. We sometimes speak about innovation as a matter of survival, 
But in the world of disasters, natural or man-made, it literally is the case. Unless we can find solutions and fast to problems of providing clean water, food, healthcare and shelter, vulnerable people are at serious risk. Thankfully, it's a world where innovation happens. And whilst the demand side remains almost overwhelming in scale, the availability of innovations to help deal with it is improving. And part of the solution lies in capacity building, developing the skills and capabilities needed in the people who work in the sector, meeting the challenge of learning the craft of innovation. There's been a lot of interest in this over the past 10 years, and the sector is moving to a position where innovators recognize success is more than just luck, and they're working to master the skills and capabilities around managing innovation. Training programs abound, covering the challenge of building robust business models, learning to use key tools in innovation management, mastering the required skills to manage the journey to scale. The supply side is also changing, becoming more diverse both in the number of players and the range of resources that they offer. Many organizations are now joining traditional players like schools, universities and company training departments as sources of learning support around innovation management. The consulting industry, for example, no longer simply trades on providing expert knowledge. Instead, it increasingly seeks to transfer and to help embed innovation skills inside organizations. And it does so through multiple inputs. Supply chain learning has been a key feature of the work of companies like Toyota for many years, passing on process innovation skills through guest engineers acting as learning facilitators. Software vendors like Hype see their role not only as providing the tools for managing innovation across a wide range of organizations, but also about training and development. Now, this proliferation on both the demand and the supply side around innovation skills poses a challenge. How can we enable different learners in different contexts to master the craft of innovation? This isn't easy. For a start, the subject is not a theory, although there are many strands of theory which can help inform the craft. It's something learned by doing and reflecting. Smart innovators learn and improve over time. So classroom-based models may be incomplete, although they may well help provide some of the key foundations. But simply learning by doing and failing is also not sufficient. Experience may be a great teacher, and we can certainly learn to avoid failure next time if we take care to distill lessons from a current experience. The trouble is that this is wasteful. A much better approach might be to integrate the body of knowledge which we've accumulated over time with the world of practice. A sort of just-in-time model where relevant knowledge can be brought to bear in the context within which the need for it arises. And the pattern's complicated further by the proliferation of channels through which learning can take place. Flipped classrooms, project-based learning and many other tools have a good pedigree but to them now must be added the world of online and blended learning. And then there's the role of powerful new technologies, for example, virtual and augmented reality, which will allow simulation and exploration in hitherto impossible ways. 
All of which makes having a picture of the future and the ways in which we can help people master the craft of innovation rather important. Not least because the future has yet to happen. The better we understand and explore it, the more we can identify desirable scenarios and then backcast from them, roadmapping our way to relevant policy and practices which we can introduce today. Now, that was the thinking behind establishing the Vision Project back in 2019. Conceived as a knowledge alliance project within the European Union's Erasmus Plus scheme, this brought together a mixture of university researchers, practitioners from a variety of public and private sector organisations, policymakers and support organisations, all of them looking at a core question. How can teachers and trainers stay current and address the dynamic opportunities of creativity, innovation and entrepreneurship teaching and training? Vision used an integrated and proven suite of tools for systematically exploring the future. And they engaged with over 120 stakeholders, building a variety of scenarios and exploring them in depth through workshops, webinars and other tools, trying to create a detailed picture of the emerging challenges and opportunities in this space of learning facilitation around innovation, creativity and entrepreneurship. The process highlights a number of challenges for many different actors. Learners themselves, of course, but also those who facilitate learning. Teachers, trainers, coaches, consultants, and who do so in many different settings. And it's challenges for the wider organisations in which those learners work. Questions around how to create a learning context in the middle of a productive workspace. How to blur the boundaries between learning and work. How to make immersive learning contexts. And for those conventional providers with classroom heritages, how do you find new ways of enabling learning? How to find new ways of reaching out? What are the opportunities and the challenges in remote and blended learning? Or taking on new technologies, new approaches? And what about the demand side? The market to whom all of this learning support provision is addressed? Clayton Christensen's visionary challenge to higher education, published a few years ago, suggested significant potential for disruption, not least by radically extending the market space to include those previously unserved or underserved by existing provision. So will digital technologies and falling costs in course and learning resources mean that many more people can access the skills of innovation, creativity and entrepreneurship? And what will this do to existing structures and business models? We've already got some examples of this, like the University of Southern New Hampshire, which is providing degree-level training in innovation and entrepreneurship to people living in refugee camps. With seed funding from the Audacious Fund piloting the programme, they're now seeking to scale their solution to 15 countries over the next five years, lowering the cost of the degree and enabling more than 16,000 refugees across 23 sites to improve their futures. Now, these sorts of changes represent fault lines along which the current models of learning may fracture. And like any crisis, there are also significant opportunities opened up by this. There's grounds for great optimism. 
As Catherine Merslein, who is vice president of one of Germany's oldest and most prestigious universities, and also the current president of the European Academy of Management, as she put it in a recent interview, collaborative learning, joint innovation and co-creation of knowledge will characterize the future of education. I envisage a future where learning happens in all kinds of places, at flexible time schedules and in very diverse digital and social settings. Let us care much more about deep engagement, the joy of learning and traceable learning journeys. Now that's an optimistic vision, but one which is realistic, providing we start working on our strategies today. Now we're going to be exploring this future landscape in a series of podcasts linked to this one and linked to the Vision Project. In particular, we'll look at some of the key dimensions of change which that project identified. And to bring it to life, we'll try and explore through the experience of a number of different personas. What do different players see, hear, feel as they play their role as learners or teachers or in other parts of the system? What makes a good experience and what might be distilled from that to try and build for the future?